So today we are going to continue uh, in Acts, believe it or not, right? We just keep moving forward. We're in Acts chapter 19, and it really is a great passage to talk about as we approach uh, the holidays, the high holy days. You know, I mentioned a, a little book uh, that uh, that I think is uh, kind of helpful for the holidays on several different levels. It's called "This Is Real," and you are completely unprepared for it. That is one. That is just one great title right there, right? Uh, and so it's about transformation. It's written by a rabbi. It's not written uh, by a Messiah follower. So you have to take everything you know about Yeshua and put it in there. I sent that an email about it. Uh, and uh, but he talks about transformation, and he talks about the uh, the the world that we don't see, and that it's uh, that it's real and even more real than this world. I thought, wow, isn't that pretty interesting? He's written by a conservative rabbi, uh, and uh, but but he's talking about transformation. Now, everything in there, you some things you might have to pick out and say, well, I'm not so sure about that. But generally speaking, there's a lot to be gained uh, from this. Uh, from this book, and what he does is he he frames this idea of transformation in this journey beginning at Tisha B'Av, and then the beginning of this month of Elul, and then when we come to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and so on. So, um, I one of the things that we're going to see here in Acts chapter 19 today uh, is one of the ways of transformation, I think. Okay, uh, now, uh, we uh, have already seen the beginning of chapter 19 uh, about some people that uh, had uh, not heard of uh, the immersion of Yeshua, right? Only John, and, and we see uh, that uh, Paul lays his hands on them. They receive the Ruach, uh, and uh, so we see that here in Ephesus, uh, that um, there were people who had heard uh, the message, uh, but we see at the beginning this experience of them receiving the Holy Spirit, receiving the Ruach. Now, Ephesus is really very, um, very important in the story of the beginning of the, uh, the proclamation of the good news, uh, of the beginning of the body of Messiah, of the communities of Messiah followers. It's very significant. We see here in uh, chapter 19 that Paul spent several years here. This was not a place that he went, uh, you know, uh, he got in trouble and then left. This was a place that he stayed at for several years. Uh, and and uh, and quite a significant uh, community. And Luke, in the way that he writes Acts, uh, Ephesus is kind of a centerpiece uh, to what's going on in uh, the uh, proclamation of the of the good news. So in uh, chapter nineteen, there's like three stories of Paul's exploits at Ephesus. There's more uh, later on even, but here there's three stories. One is these people, these uh, 12 uh, people who uh, received the Holy Spirit. Then we have uh, what we're going to talk about today, 
We're going to talk about Paul's encounter with demonic forces and great miracles that take place at Ephesus. And then the third story, which we'll save for next week, is uh, about a, a, a situation having to do with uh, so many people are coming to know the Lord that it is creating an economic problem for the uh, uh, idol makers <laughs> and, uh, and, and how Paul is uh, creating uh, a problem with the issue of idolatry. With, so, so you could say that the first, uh, the first story is people receiving the Lord. The second story uh, is about Paul's interaction with demonic forces. And the third story is the issue of idolatry. Okay? So one of the things that we know about Ephesus is that it was full of idolatry and full of sorcery, we'll call it. Idolatry and sorcery and magic and, uh, uh, you know, uh, people uh, performing uh, incantations and having, a, you know, a, a secret, uh, secret uh, kinds of uh, uh, magical, performing magical arts and, and, and things of that nature as well as good old idolatry, uh, you know, of, of worshiping gods of wood and stone. Uh, and so this is where Paul spends a few years. It's kind of interesting uh, uh, that, that he spends this much time here. So we ended last time uh, I really talking about the, the, the folks who had received the Ruach. We talked all about that. So now, beginning in verse 8 of uh, Acts 19, And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Right? And so I think we actually mentioned this last time, uh, that uh, he's talking to them about the kingdom of God. He's talking to them about Yeshua is the king and the beginnings of the Olam Haba. This is good news. Uh, as we see in this week's Haftorah portion, you know, uh, how blessed are those who bring the good news and, you know, and saying to Zion, your God reigns. Uh, and so Paul is bringing this uh, message about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, uh, remember that uh, the believers were called the way at, uh, at this time in, in this part of the world. Uh, before the multitude, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus, uh, who was probably a person. Okay, he's in Ephesus. All right. Uh, and this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Ephesus was a, a really important and influential uh, uh, city. You can visit its remains uh, today, in fact. Uh, and, uh, and so from here, people all over Asia heard uh, the message of Yeshua. I just want to stop and say, usually we just think of like Jerusalem and Rome. You know, and we know Ephesus because there's a letter written to the Ephesian believers. But this is a very significant place. 
And it does shed some important light on the letter to Ephesus, the Ephesian uh, letter. It's important to understand what's going on in this chapter to really get the most out of Ephesians when you read that letter. Okay? All right. We'll see some of that today. And God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Even Luke uses the term extraordinary. This was not your everyday uh, miracle taking place here. This was extraordinary. Uh, uh, things that we would consider like, wow, you know, this never happened before. Or even maybe since there were extraordinary things that were going on. It kind of reminds me a little bit of what we read in Acts 5 about Peter. Remember what it says about Peter, that he, his shadow would come over people and they would be healed. I mean, there were amazing things uh, happening here. Uh, and so here we read uh, in verse 12, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick. And the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. Most people think it, what, what this is referring to is like a bandana, like uh, you know, a bandana that he wore around his head. Usually we don't think of these people looking that way, do we? But yeah, like a bandana, and then what he wore around, around his waist. Uh, and uh, people were being healed, and uh, uh, demons were fleeing, right? Evil spirits, as he calls them here, uh, were, uh, were fleeing, right? And so, uh, you know, extraordinary uh, miracles uh, were uh, taking place here. Now, uh, I would suggest that one of the reasons that you have extraordinary miracles, there's a lot of reasons that this could be, but one is, is that you had extraordinary demonic activity in this place. I met with extraordinary uh, miracles, you know, I, and, uh, and I think that's uh, very important. And of course, the question that everybody then asks is, so is that like something that happens now? So I think the answer to that question is, well, certainly could, uh, it, you, you know, it, it certainly could. I, and, you know, in my own personal experience, where I've heard of these types of things are in places where the gospel has not really uh, been preached and where very strange demonic activity is going on in different parts of the world. Do you know that um, uh, sometimes, I remember hearing this about Europe, but now it's, I, I think, kind of true of the U.S., I, that I, in terms of the good news being uh, shared, that we live in a post-biblical uh, a kind of uh, a culture. Uh, in other words, the message ha has been shared, and there was a time of uh, you know there was a time of real uh, embracing, and then it kind of has grown cold, right? And I would suggest that. Uh, while God can do anything anywhere and does from time to time, okay, that it is in places where the good news is being shared and people are receiving it, 
uh, again, where it has not been before and where there is great demonic activity, you see all kinds in here, all, all kinds of things uh, that go on. And that certainly was the case at, at, you know, here at the beginning. Uh, so the one thing what we just want to always be aware of is that you don't read something like this and say, okay, so this is how everything is supposed to be, right? First of all, he says in the text, this is extraordinary. Even in the first century, uh, you know, this would be called out of the norm. And of course, it is God's sovereign hand who does the miracles. And as we're going to learn, it's not in an incantation. It's not in the uh, terminology or the deportment of or how loud uh, a person may uh, uh, speak, but it is a person who is a cleansed vessel of God being used, and it is God who is at work doing this, doing these extraordinary things. Okay, but so you don't only have that. Now he's going to tell a little story. And so he says this. But also some of the Jewish exorcists. Now this is interesting. You know, look for this word elsewhere in the uh, in, in the Bible. All right. So you have first of all Jewish exorcists. We say what? This is not Jewish exorcists. This is not Jewish. How could this be Jewish? When was the last time you ever heard of Jewish exorcists? Right. Well, at this particular time, I. Jewish people in different parts of the world were very attractive to, to others because they were engaged in what we would call today sorcery or magic, okay? Uh, and some of it had to do, this is really interesting, with the idea that God's name could not be pronounced because part of the allure of magic and sorcery was the secretive nature of incantations uh, and uh, you know and and the the work of these uh, and the work of these people right and and so because only a few people so to speak could pronounce this name wow there's a real allure to jewish magicians met people engaged in magical arts and the um and those who were purporting to deal in the uh the demonic world okay so that's a kind of uh, interesting you read about it in in jewish uh extra biblical sources um about these people it is rather interesting and even uh the incantations uh, uh, some, some that were being used. You, you read about these things. It's very interesting. Okay, so we see, but some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits of the name of the Lord Yeshua, saying, I adjure you by Yeshua, whom Paul preaches. So this is really interesting. What they wanted to do, they saw the power, they saw what Paul was doing, and they thought, if we say what he says, it's going to really work. You know, this should really be something. And so we're going to say this name, Yeshua. And therefore, 
we're going to see all of these, you know, miraculous things take place, right? So he talks about the seven sons of Skeva, a Jewish chief priest. Now, before we get all excited about, wow, he was like a high priest? What's he doing in Ephesus? Okay, notice it doesn't say high priest. What many believe is that this Skeva was a self-proclaimed chief priest and that he was actually not a even a priest i mean like a uh uh from the you know levitical ironic uh, a priest but a, a charlatan uh just a, you know a, a charlatan uh engaged in uh, magic okay so it says the seven sons of skeva a jewish chief priest we're doing this. In fact, several uh, sources that I use said that if quotation marks, now I see, now I don't know if this is true or not, so you'll have to ask others, okay? Uh, I, that, that if Luke could have used quotation marks, he might have used quotation marks around chief priest, but nobody knows that. It was just an interesting thing I read. We're doing this. And the evil spirits answered and said to them, I recognize Yeshua, and I know about Paul, but who are you? How do you like that? So uh, these evil spirits knew Yeshua because, as we know, there is an unseen world, and that the victory of Messiah in his death and his resurrection and his ascension was a victory over demonic forces, in the unseen world that have a visible manifestation, right? Uh, and uh, that the enemy has been defeated, yet it's still that present, but not yet, you know, the, the ultimate uh, end of it. But, um, but this uh, very interesting, the evil spirit says to these sons of Skeva, who are you? You know, I don't recognize you. And it's, it's an, just an amazing, amazing uh, thing, right? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped up on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. What you see here is this chaotic, this chaotic dark moment this chaotic moment of the person whom they're, they're trying to, you know, get the evil spirit out of, leaps up and attacks the seven sons of Skeva, right? Uh, and, and they're scared to death. They run away. Uh, it says naked and wounded, right? Uh, and so you see that uh, here, tremendous... Uh, demonic activity tremendous uh, uh demonic activity uh, but that only paul was able to be able to actually loosen the you know the spirits from the from the people and what do we read then this became known to all both jews and greeks who lived in ephesus and fear fell upon them all and the name of the lord yeshua was being magnified and so what they saw was wow you know that what whatever paul is doing is greater than the magicians greater than the sorcerers 
greater than uh, all of these people engaged in magical arts, even if they're trying to use the same incant from their point of view, incantation, it's not working, right? Uh, and, and so uh, what we see here is, is that in this experience, uh, the name of Yeshua is being magnified. And what ends up happening? Many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. Now that's important, see, that they're disclosing their practices because evidently part of their perceived power was in the secrecy. And by disclosing their practices, they're, it, it's sort of like they're saying uh, they're, they're repenting. Uh, they're, they're repenting and they're repudiating uh, their, secret, uh, their secret practices. Okay? And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all, and they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily uh, and prevailing. Wow. So as a result of the inability of these magicians to uh, overtake these evil spirits, people recognized that there's something about this Yeshua whom Paul is propagating. There's something about him. And so, uh, by the testimony here that we read, uh, that uh, they're disclosing their practices, they're coming, they're confessing, uh, and then they bring their books and they begin burning them. And this was really expensive. In other words, uh, them burning their books was very costly. Now, this is not, uh, you don't want to take this, this verse and say, okay, let's start uh, a book burning campaign. All right. I, I guess it depends, I suppose. But the, whoop, okay. But the point is uh, here is what these people did. And in this, I think there is really something for us to uh, uh to uh to learn okay so what did they do they repudiated they repudiated their pagan practices they they uh, they were they became followers of yeshua that says they believed and then the, and they repudiated their practices they didn't just say i repent i repent from my pagan practices and i won't do it anymore okay but that's not all they did, right? Uh, may I suggest that they repudiated, they forsook their practices by getting rid of all the things that represented this demonic activity. And it wasn't like, I'll get rid of it, but you know, I'm going to save some back for a rainy day, you know? I, I, or, I, you know, I'll get rid of it, but I've had this one for a long time and I'm not so sure, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it can go both ways. I'm not sure. Uh, no, they forsook these uh, uh, practices. You know, you read in Proverbs in chapter nine, forsake your folly and live, proceed in the way of understanding. 
That's in Proverbs 9, uh, uh, 6. Uh, you know, and then also in Isaiah chapter 55, there's a great word on this, this idea of forsaking, of uh, not only turning around, but physically ridding yourself of things uh, that, uh, uh, that have uh, demonic uh, influence. Uh, or even things that uh, uh, cause us to stumble. I mean, it could be you know we can use that as an as a you know sort of a as a model of this. But anyway, in Isaiah fifty five, it says in verses six and seven, "Seek the Lord while he may be found; call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways, uh, and the unrighteous man his thoughts." And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, he will abundantly pardon. Forsake his way, you know, to let it go, to remove it, right? And, uh, and I think that is, uh, I, I think that really does speak to us when we're thinking about this season of the year. Of not only say, so I'm confessing my sins, but do we really repudiate evil or what is wrong or things that we may, we may own or have that really get in the way of our walk with God? That is, that is, I would just say in the big picture, what's happening here. What you see here, yes, what you see is that, is that the good, nothing is stopping the good news, okay? Ultimately, the reason you know, why Luke goes out of his way to say all of this uh, is so that he can say, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. <laughs> okay, that is verse 20. Uh, you know, and you see that in other places. We see the gospel coming against civil powers, against religious authorities, and here demonic authorities, right? But nothing will stop the good news because Yeshua has overtaken it all. But what we see is people turn from their, even it says, I won't take the time, but in Acts chapter 2, he says, turn from your wicked ways. That's what Peter says. Turn from your wicked ways. It's not only, our faith is not just in our head. And it's not true just because we believe it. Okay. In other words, you know, this is real and we are completely unprepared for it, you know? Uh, and, uh, and so I think uh, that this chapter really helps us uh, to come to terms maybe with some things in our lives that we, you know, I, I'm, I'm willing to repent, obviously. I want to live a godly life. But are there things that we need to remove? And maybe they're not just attitudes. Maybe there are real things we need to get rid of, you know, that can be a temptation to us, or that cause us stumbling, or that can be identified with, uh, you know, uh, demonic activity. You know, only, only you would know that, you know what I mean? Uh, uh, but that, again, it's something I think to, to think about, and we see that is what these people, that is what these people did. Uh, and so it serves as a, a very interesting example for us. But also, I think, it enlightens us a little bit on the book of Ephesians. 
Uh, you know, there are several places in Ephesians. Usually, of course, we in a Messianic uh, congregation, we're thinking Ephesians, we're thinking unity of Jews and Gentiles, and that's basically what the letter's about. Well, there's, there's more than meets the eye uh, in uh, Ephesians. For example, uh, you know, in the uh, first chapter, in Paul's prayer, in the first uh, 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 chapter, uh, it says uh, this, in, beginning in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inher inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Messiah when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the kihilah, or the ecclesia, uh, which is his body, the fullness of him who fits all, who fills all in all. These were people living in this city of, uh, you know, of great ungodliness and of great darkness, and they had witnessed the power of God. And so Paul is praying that they would remember that. Remember the power of God over these forces of darkness. Uh, and then, um, of course, also uh, in the uh, third chapter, uh, uh, we read uh, here uh, in verses uh, 8, 9, and 10. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Messiah and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who creates all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the congregation to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul is acknowledging, weaving it all through this letter, that Yeshua and the power of the Ruach is more powerful than any, any demonic force. Not only the civil authorities, or even Jewish authorities at the time, but even demonic authorities. And then, of course, well, actually, in the fourth chapter, there's also another little section. I think it, it really uh, is enlightening. In light of what we read in Acts 19, I think it's very enlightening what we read in Ephesians 4, 17, when it says, This I say, therefore, uh, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the pagans, he's using the word Gentiles here uh, as pagans, uh, also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. That you see in this in chapter 19, 
That had to do with Artemis. That had to do with the idol makers. It had to do with the, the powers of darkness that were being overcome. Paul is very aware uh, of that. And then, of course, the famous passage uh, in chapter 6. And I want to point something out about that. Okay? No, I better keep this. Okay. We're all familiar with, uh, toward the end of, in the, or the middle of chapter 6 of Ephesians, when uh, we read in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. Again, you think in terms of what was going on, what Ephesus was like at this time, uh, and the, the testimony uh, that Luke gives us of Paul of what took place. No wonder you have this in this passage. Uh, no wonder this is in Ephesians and not in Philippians, <laughs> you, you know? Uh, and uh, and there you go. So then he says, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to, with, to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Then he goes off on this standing firm, stand firm. Stand firm, uh, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the word and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And of course, you know, at the very end, the sword of the Spirit is, in a, you know, the, the word of God is, the, is our weapon, Right? And so we need to know the Word of God clearly. Uh, and, I, I, you know, I don't have time, nor uh, do I want to go through, you know, to give a whole message on this. But I will say that there's something kind of interesting about it, which I think helps us to get an understanding of the, of the whole passage, rather than only than piecemeal, you, you, you know? I think the idea of the, uh, the Roman soldier, you know, that's helpful, but it's not really what he's getting at. It's not really what he's getting at. Uh, he's also not really getting at just like saying this, just saying these words, and there you go. But he's getting at something else. Do you notice, somebody asked me um, uh, this week in a Bible study, how come sometimes the words in a verse in the New Covenant are all capitalized? That's because they're quotes from the Tanakh. Okay? They're quotes from the Tanakh. In this little section of the armor of God, Paul quotes Isaiah three times. And he's quoting messianic passages each time. Okay? The first one, uh, when uh, we read here, stand firm having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, this is a verse. Okay? I, and uh, it comes from Isaiah chapter 11 in verse 5. Isaiah 11, that should ring a bell for us. That is a very famous messianic uh, passage, right? 
I uh, here. I'm going to go back to verse 1. Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Paul is not just saying, be like a Roman soldier and have the belt on and all that. He's saying, be like Messiah. Yeshua is the king. And in him, as you dwell in him, you will stand firm against the arrows of the enemy. He is identified. Why does he say that? Why doesn't he just say, stand firm and live in the truth of Messiah? But he quotes a verse. He quotes the verse because of what the verse is in the context of, and it is in the context of King Messiah. Yeshua has defeated the enemy. We live in him. It's not that now we're all powerful and, and I have this gift and I can do this and that. No, as we dwell in him, we stand firm. Okay? Uh, now, then he says, having and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. How appropriate, because it's in this week's Haftorah portion, right? In Isaiah again, in chapter 52. In Isaiah uh, chapter 52, we read this. Beginning in verse uh, 5. Now, therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause. Again, the Lord declared, those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Again, he's saying, okay, this is what God says that the remnant is going to do, that as you live in the Lord, as you uh, live under the authority of the king and you announce that Messiah has come, then there's more, okay? He doesn't leave it there. He says then, okay, you know, uh, taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish the flaming missiles of the, you know, trusting in God and living faithfully. But then he says, and take the helmet of salvation, the helmet of salvation, and the helmet of salvation. That also comes from Isaiah uh, in uh, chapter uh, 59, okay? I, I, in Isaiah chapter 59. It's a great uh, passage. It's one of those, what do you mean? There's more than Isaiah 53, 7, 9, and 11? What? How could it be? Right? Uh, but in Isaiah chapter 59, by the way, it begins, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. 
neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Your hands are defiled with blood. But then when you read all the way down to verse, uh, let's see, uh, 17. Uh, actually, we have to go back to verse uh, 15 in the middle of the verse. Now the Lord says, it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. And he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. And then it says, according to their deeds, so he will repay. So the point is, is again, Paul is identifying putting on the armor of God is putting on, shall we say, not only the character or the attributes of God, but as he says, even in, Yesh in Ephesians, in the fourth chapter, put on Yeshua. Put on Yeshua as, as you have Yeshua on. And as you are walking with him, that is where spiritual power comes from. And so I think that that's really interesting that uh, Paul is writing to the Ephesians. He is, uh, 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 you know, telling them that the power of God is more power than all, more powerful than all the powers of darkness. Remember that. And he says, you can stand firm as you dwell in the Messiah, the Messiah of Israel. Uh, and, uh, and of course, he has just finished telling them that uh, they have been brought near uh, and uh, that they become part of what is called the commonwealth of, of Israel. And Messiah is indeed their king. And that is how I, you know, we can walk in confidence. And of course, I'm not going to turn to it, but you can turn yourself to like in Romans chapter eight, that nothing can separate us from the, from the love of God. No, uh, evil forces or, uh, you know, principalities or anything like that. That was demonstrated in, uh, Acts chapter 19. Uh, Paul writes about it in Ephesians and in Romans, and it is true for us as well as we dwell in him. And so during this season, how important it is for us to, yes, put on the breastplate of righteousness, which means put on the clothing of Messiah, the king, walk with him, and forsake everything else. Forsake anything that takes us away from the kingship, the lordship of Messiah, whether it is thoughts or whether it is real things, as we see uh, here in, in uh, Acts 19. And so we still have a few weeks to go. We're in the month of Elul. May this be a unique season for us of a real cleansing. You know, it just reminds me of that passage in 1 Corinthians about Passover, right? Clean out the old leaven so that you might be what you really are, unleavened. Clean out the old leaven 
It works here too. Clean out, clean out things. Usually we say it like metaphorically, clean out all of the compartments of our lives or the rooms in our hearts. But maybe it's really a room in our house <laughs> that we really need to clean out, you, you know, uh, and, uh, and really experience that cleansing. I think it can be quite helpful, you know. On the afternoon of Rosh Hashanah, we're going to go down to the down to Creekside, we're going to take a little stone. And on that stone, that stone is going to represent our sins. And we throw it into the water. The idea of that tactile concept of throwing it helps us to understand what forsaking is. It's throwing it away, throwing it in a place where we can't get to it anymore. That's really trusting a God and walking with him. And so uh, may, we, uh, may we truly put off the old and put on Messiah in all ways in this season. Let's pray. Lord uh, God, um, thank you, God, for this word. Lord, uh, I pray that we would forsake sin, not, not only repent of it, not just maybe repudiate it with our words, but in our actions as well. May we relieve ourselves of anything that has a stronghold over our lives, whatever it may be, God. And we thank you for the great promise that we have is that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world and that Yeshua has the victory. And Lord, I know that we are still living in this world. We're still living in the in this battle, we're still in the flesh. We don't have, you know, there's still temptations and, uh, and things of that nature. But God, I pray, God, that we would have victory as we repent, as we repudiate, as we, as we forsake the God. And may we really experience a new level of transformation in our, in our lives, in our whole lives not just in our, in our heads, but in our whole lives, Lord. And uh, God, uh, we pray that we would indeed stand firm in you, as Paul did in Ephesus, and magnified your name, and many came to believe. And we pray in Messiah's name, amen.